Hi, friends, and welcome to the latest edition of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Francois Cholet. Francois is also the author of the book Deep Learning with Python, and is interested in understanding the nature of abstraction and developing algorithms capable of autonomous abstraction and democratizing. Francois is also the author of the book Deep Learning with Python and of the influential paper on the measure of intelligence. Francois is interested in understanding the nature of abstraction and developing algorithms capable of autonomous abstraction as well as democratizing the development and deployment of AI technology, among other topics. This conversation was really incredible for me. I have been a fan of Francois's work ever since I began using the Keras library back in college. His paper on the measure of intelligence is, I think, an incredibly thought-provoking one. And if you haven't read it already, I would highly encourage you to do so. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And now, without further ado, Francois Cholet. My first question, as for every guest, is going to be how you got into AI in the first place. Right. So I've been into AI since I was a teenager, pretty much. Um, I remember when I was 16, I decided, hey, you know, my life goal was going to be to invent AI. So where did that come from? You know, at the time, you know, as a kid, I was uh, reading lots of science fiction and uh, Asimov was actually a big favorite of mine. And it was mixed with the fact that I had um, this sort of like philosophical interest in the nature of the human mind, you know, the nature of consciousness, the nature of intelligence and so on. And so if you try to mix the two, you get, you get AI. And so because I had this interest as a, as a teenager, I was reading up a lot on neuropsychology and I was actually quite disappointed because so I took, um, this was like the, the very, very first days of the uh, MIT Open Courseware project where they put lectures online. So I took like the neuropsychology lectures from that program. And I was super disappointed because it turned out that, you know, it was super interesting content, but there were like no answers, no theory about what the mind is and how it works and so on. And that's basically how I ended up getting interested into get, getting into AI is that I, I wanted to see if you could try to understand the mind, not by observing the brain or observing people, but by, you know, start from the theory and then try to implement it and see, and see what works basically. So when, uh, when I got uh, into college, I started taking uh, AI classes and I was the point again, because uh, AI back then, so, you know, there was, there was no deep learning. I mean, obviously in deep neural networks uh, had been a thing for decades. But it wasn't, it wasn't a popular approach at all. And no one really wanted to talk about it. It was considered a failure. And so I took AI classes. And at the time, it was very much, you know, all about 
computer science. It was like the ESTA algorithm and so on. And it had, it had no connection with the reason I was interested in AI in the first place, which was the human mind. Uh, so I was kind of disappointed with that. And I ended up hopping from place to place. I ended up uh, in this uh, very niche subfield uh, of AI called Cognitive Developmental Robotics. It was like just, just a few, I think, hundreds of people doing research in that space. And it's basically this crossover subfield between developmental psychology and robotics, where the goal is to try to bring this developmental lens to building robots, like build robots or, or programs that try to simulate the early stages of human development. And that actually spoke to me because it was uh, obviously tightly connected to what I wanted to be doing. Uh, but then after I graduated, I ended up uh, moving into the, the industry. Uh, I did not uh, complete my PhD. So I, I started doing a couple of startups and I, I ended up uh, at Google uh, doing software engineering. There's a lot of what you said. I think the thing you mentioned earlier about understanding intelligence by trying to implement it is certainly something I've heard from a lot of people in the AI space. And I guess very much coheres with the software engineering mindset, I suppose. You've, you've tweeted, I believe, that programming is really about building clear mental models of something. And I do wonder, maybe separately from the Measures of Intelligence paper, how perhaps your time building Keras has been formative in your thinking about AI and intelligence more broadly, if at all. Totally. Uh, in general, I think, you know, software engineering is, is very much a mindset. It's almost like a, a way of life. So as you become a professional software engineer, as you build a career in software engineering, it profoundly changes the way you think. And if you look at, you know, when, when, I, when I started, you know, trying to come up with theories of the mind, trying to come up with cognitive architectures, I already kind of, kind of knew how to code, but I was extremely bad at it. I was not like, a, I was in college. I was not like a software engineer at all. And uh, these attempts were, you know, obviously not, not super productive. It's not that the ideas were bad. They actually, they were actually uh, quite, they, they were going in, uh, in interesting directions. It's just that if you don't know how to program, you just, you just do not have the tool set to actually build up on these ideas, to actually build something interesting and actionable out of it. Uh, so today is actually a different story. I, I feel like I have a, a few ideas. I'm less creative, but at least I have the, the ability to implement. Yeah, I suppose now that we're kind of on the topic of software engineering and Keras, this is a library that has been immensely influential in the ML space. Personally, it was the first deep learning library that I ever used and was really just a wonderful introduction. I'm curious, just as somebody who has built this thing that has been used by so many people, how you think about the design of a system, something that is meant to capture and do something that we might think of as really complex, just how you think about creating that for, for people to use, kind of delighting your users. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm glad the, the software is useful. Uh, <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks for the kind words. So I, I think what, what made Kara successful and what made it very different at the time is that there was this emphasis on creating 
a good user experience and thinking about the library as a product with a product experience and not just, you know, as a, as a tool that provided certain capabilities to experts, basically not, not just a bundle of features, but something that guides an end user into the step-by-step -step workflow to solve, to solve your problems you know, with as little friction as possible. So when I, when I got started, started with it, you know, I, I definitely had this intent to make it easier, to make it frictionless, maybe even delightful. I was uh, a big fan of scikit-learn and what scikit-learn had done for classical ML before. And so I wanted to kind of recreate that experience, but for deep learning. And obviously because it's deep learning, it needed far more flexibility than just uh, the scikit-learn type interfaces. So I, I, I started out with this, uh, this desire, but uh, I had very little uh, principled understanding of how to do it. So this is really something I built up uh, after I started working on Keras. After I started working on it and I realized it, I, I saw all these people from very, very diverse walks of life start you know, using it to solve their problems. And I thought it was really inspiring because they were using it to build things I could not have built because I, I, I would just have not been able to come up with it, you know. Uh, so this was, this was really inspiring. It, it really showed me that, you know, to realize the potential of these technologies, you need to democratize them as much as possible. You need to give them to everyone because that's how they're going to get deployed to all the problems that they can help solve. And so as I, as I saw this, I wanted to make it, you know, even more frictionless, even more uh, accessible. And I started thinking about what makes a library uh, have this good UX. And really, it's all about uh, creating abstractions, mental models, software, software models that closely match the mental models of your users. So expert mental models, domain expert mental models. And the, the way you do this really is by, by being a user yourself, or at the very least, putting yourself into the, the user's shoes and going through these end-to-end -end workflows and, and starting about what are the mental models backing them? How do people think? about uh, their data, about training a model, about evaluating a model, and so on. Uh, and then you try to map these mental models to software abstractions, to steps uh, in an API. And then you, you start you know, thinking about how to manage complexity in your API, how to make sure that you have as few different abstractions, as few different objects as possible, and each object with a, a reasonably simple signature and so on. It's a reasonably simple interface. And one principle I'm a big fan of when it comes to making sure that you have a hierarchical, modular, well-structured APIs is the principle of uh, progressive disclosure of complexity, which is this idea that if you're new to the library, you, you come into it, you have these very basic, simple use cases. It should be extremely simple. It should be like, here's my model, model.fit, model.evaluate, I'm done. Uh, it should be scikit-learn style, basically. It should be like the highest level possible uh, interface. And that's obviously not enough because what if you have a slightly more complex use case? What if you, you, know, uh, you gain expertise and now you want to add a few uh, customization to your code? If you have something like scikit-learn, you're, you're pretty much blocked. And so this idea of progressive disclosure of complexity is that every time you kind of level up in terms of sophistication of your use cases, uh, you have this, the ability to take your old simple workflow and modify just one part of it. Basically, only learn an incremental amount about the software, about the API, to be able to handle something that's incrementally more complex in terms of the actual domain problem. 
And that's progressively the exposure of complexity. So this idea that, sure, you have these very high-level objects, but if you need customization, you can always like drop down, drop like one level lower, uh, add you know a custom layer here and there, a custom last function, custom optimizer, and so on, and a custom train step. And in the extreme, you end up with a piece of code that you've written yourself entirely in a lower-level language, uh, like TensorFlow. And uh, at that point, the, the library Keras is really just providing template, a sort of style guide for how to structure your code. But the code itself is your code. So you can use as little or as much of the high-level functionality as you want, and you're not limited by it. That's really said that it should be flexible. It should be simple. But when you need the flexibility, it should be flexible. I think that progressive disclosure, the design principle of it also to what you were saying earlier about democratization, it's just a powerful tool for pedagogy as well, I think. I'm sure that many people listening to this might be familiar with the fast.ai courses, for instance. And the way those start, at least when I first tried it, was let's just load in this pre-trained VGG model and get it working on ImageNet. And it's literally like seven lines of code or so. I think when I took it, that was that was all done in Keras. And incrementally, you start, as you're saying, developing something a little bit more complex. You, you fiddle with the innards of the model a little bit more until the point where you're actually conversant with, now I can even implement my own modules, my own layers, and to what you're saying, really have something that you've written yourself in a, a lower level version of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This, the, the idea that, sure, the software should make things simple, but you should not be facing uh, a cliff at some point where you're trying to customize things further, but the software just doesn't allow it, doesn't have this flexibility. So you should make sure you have this gradual, smooth uh, drop-off to, to a, a lower layer of implementation. One thought there I'm curious is you mentioned like a gradual, smooth drop-off, and I can imagine that there are ways this can go really well in terms of how incremental the disclosure of complexity is. But then I'm sure that it's possible to increase complexity too much to the point where that's no longer quite as progressive as one might want it to be. And I know this is just talking, but I am curious if you've developed any principles for yourself or thoughts on what is like a manageable level of progression? Right. So in in general, in, there's no like abstract answer to this question. Uh, your, your abstractions have to be designed after the mental models of the main experts. So it really depends. But in deep learning, uh, the big steps are something that are going to be like, you, know, you prepare your data, you pre-process your data, uh, you define your model, then potentially, you know, you might define it with hyperparameters. Uh, if you want to do an hyperparameter sweep, you train your model uh, and you evaluate it along the way. You stop training and then maybe you go back uh, to your architecture. And eventually, you know, you, you drop uh, out of this loop by exporting a model uh, for inference. And uh, this idea is that so each, uh, each of these uh, sort of like steps should be handled by one abstraction, one set uh, of APIs. And each uh, API uh, within that little bubble is going to be uh, decomposable itself into a series of steps. So as someone who's just coming into this with not much knowledge, you just think about it as this one step. So you just have this one API that you call, and that's it. You don't need to learn anything that goes 
much beyond the way you were already thinking about the problem. Uh, if you have a more uh, custom use case, you want to be able to take one of these little bubbles and sort of like zoom in into it, decompose it into a series of lower level steps. And now you can start writing the steps uh, yourself. And then you can do this again. So for instance, maybe, maybe you want a uh, complex architecture. So you're going to uh, be implementing something like a, a, a custom train step to train your model. So now you're in control of the train loop. But then you realize, well, that's not enough. I want this custom train step, but I also want this train step to be calling a custom optimizer. So you, you have this sort of like a hierarchical, uh, almost recursive uh, zooming in process. And the, the thing is, you don't have to zoom in uniformly across the entire workflow. It's not like because you want to use a custom optimizer, suddenly you have to use a custom train step, or suddenly you have to use a subclass model or, or just write low-level code uh, throughout your workflow. You can selectively choose to customize just one part of the workflow, just the part that, that you care about. Right. And it's certainly um, aspect of design in terms of actually making that easy to do for users. One other aspect of this I'd love to hear your thoughts on is since um, I first started using Keras, there's definitely been a proliferation of ML frameworks and times have changed. PyTorch has become popular. We're now seeing at least some level of popularity with frameworks like JAX. And I suppose in having spent time very deep in this ecosystem, I am curious what common mistakes you see people developing ML frameworks committing. I know that in, in one talk, for example, you pointed at the PyTorch API as an example of not doing a great job in terms of documentation, for instance. And you've mentioned a number of principles that you try to employ in Keras. But I am curious if you have thoughts just on the state of ML frameworks right now and, and how things compare for you. Yeah, so there was a, a brief period of time where like TensorFlow uh, was pretty much a monopoly on, on ML frameworks around like 2016, yeah. uh, 2017 age. But that was, that was very brief and I think it was actually very anomalous. Uh, I don't think it's uh, natural to just have one solution because deep learning has, has gotten huge, right? And there are so many different kinds of people doing deep learning. And it seems natural that uh, there's not going to be one solution that fits all these different personas, right? Just the same way there's not like one uh, universal programming language that everyone uses. Lots of people use Python, for instance, but if you're a web developer, you don't use Python anymore, you use JavaScript. Uh, if you're a backend developer, well, you, you might be using Python. There's also a fair chance you might be using uh, something like Scala, so, you know, the, the JVM. Or if you're a game developer, you're probably not using Python either, right? You're probably going to be using something like C Sharp or C++. And I think it's very much the same in the deep learning world. Like if you're, uh, I don't know, if you're like a researcher at Google Brain and you're trying to build a trillion parameter self-supervised language model, for instance, that's a very different use case from just uh, trying to ship a time series uh, forecasting model on a time series of like uh, three different features that you want to be deploying this in a setting where it can do lifelong learning. The set of criteria that you care about is just uh, so different. And the level of expertise is extremely different. So you're not going to have one solution for everyone. We are definitely in a multi-framework world. And I don't think, I don't think that's, that's going away, right? Like uh, TensorFlow is not going away. Python is not going away. JAX uh, is actually gaining uh, popularity these days. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I suppose there are particularities of the different frameworks, different things that are easier within different ones. And so as you're saying, there's certainly a, a use case specific aspect to what people might want to use or dependent on their work. Definitely. So I think especially there's a big difference between applied ML, um, like you know, production type workflows and research workflows. Because if you're a, an applied ML engineer, the set of things that you care about is just very different than the set of things you care about as a researcher. So in particular, as a researcher, you care a lot about having a maximum flexibility and expressiveness. Whereas if you're an applied ML engineer, you actually want a, a framework that's reasonably opinionated, that guides you towards best practices. You want uh, a framework that serves as a guide. You don't want a framework that's just like a Play-Doh where you can do anything. As a researcher, you want to do things that no one has done before, pretty much. That's like that's uh, that's what you get paid for. And so you want tools uh, that uh, that match this need. And if you're uh, an applied ML engineer in reverse, you want to you want to be uh, working on uh, on the well understood, well lit passes, right? Uh, so it's it's very much uh, uh, the the opposite. Also, you know, as a as a researcher, you tend to like very minimalistic frameworks. You know, as few APIs as possible, uh, programming mental models that are as simple as possible. Whereas, as an applied ML engineer, uh, you're actually going to want a framework that's fully featured. Like anything you might want to do, that's like a standard thing. There, sh there should probably be this one API endpoint that just does it, kind of like in Python, where uh, you can always import anything. And this is this is kind of what minimizes uh, time to solution for engineers that they can just uh, use the built-in thing. And as a researcher, obviously, you don't, you don't care about the built-in thing because you want to create your own thing. So at the very least, I think there should be two sort of like front-end experiences for deep learning. There should be the researcher experience and there should be the applied ML engineer experience. And they are very much in contradiction uh, with each other. So I don't expect that you're going to have a single unified framework that does a good job at both of them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's certainly, uh, as you said, a trade-off and you can't really just put everything in one framework. I'd love to move on to your work on the measures of intelligence, kind of going back to, I suppose, some of the reasons why you got into AI in the first place. You point out in the beginning of the paper and just generally that the idea of intelligence is quite slippery. And there are a lot of, I think, intellectual foundations behind both the ideas about intelligence that you cite, but then also the one that you end up proposing yourself. And I'd love to spend a little bit of time just on those foundations, historical ways people have thought about intelligence over time. Yes, yes, totally. So, yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, if you, if you want to try to create artificial intelligence, then it's definitely worth uh, asking yourself what is intelligence some people actually some researchers decide to not look at the question because it's just it's just more of a philosophical question right and i think that's a mistake because even if you refuse to try to precisely define intelligence as long as you are in ai you have some kind of implicit working definition uh, that you that you're using and if you're if you don't want to make the definition explicit it doesn't go away. It's still there, but now it's just it's just implicit, and it's biasing you and your thinking in ways that you may not necessarily understand. So I think it's actually much more proactive to just sit down and try to come up with your definition of intelligence. And it's it's not really something around which there is a lot of consensus. How do you define intelligence? 
and historically uh, there have been uh, there have been you know these two sort of clusters uh, of definitions, and one cluster is about uh, really seeing intelligence as a collection uh, of skills, task-specific skills uh, that you're largely born with, right? And that's sort of like the, the Darwinian uh, definition of intelligence is that intelligence is a, is a collection of behaviors that are uh, environment-specific, uh, ecosystem-specific, and you uh, inherited these behaviors through uh, natural evolution, through natural selection. Um, and the other uh, view is more of the learning view. It's kind of this idea that you have the human mind sort of like a blank slate, a, a tabula rasa, and everything you know, you are learning from your environment by mirroring almost something from your environment. So like the human mind's big sponge and you plunge it into uh, this very rich, uh, information-rich environment is just absorbing the patterns in that environment and turning them uh, into skills. And I think at this point, what developmental psychology has taught us is that both of these views are largely wrong. Clearly, you know, we, we are not blank slates. We actually start out with a very significant amount of prior knowledge about the world, you know, what you would call uh, core knowledge. And at the same time, uh, that, that core knowledge, uh, innate core knowledge, uh, is definitely not uh, sufficient to generate human behavior. Like uh, humans have this extraordinary ability to adapt uh, to all kinds of novel situations. So if you look at, you know, a day in your life, for instance, it's very much uh, unlike uh, any day in the lives of any of your ancestors, right? So it's not, it's not like uh, uh, evolution uh, gave you the ability to navigate uh, your day-to-day, -day, right? Uh, uh, the behaviors that, uh, that you're enacting were not selected by evolution. But at the same time, it's not like you were born knowing absolutely nothing about the world. In fact, you are born with a tremendous amount uh, of cognitive priors and also uh, meta-learning priors, you know, uh, the ability to know uh, how to acquire uh, certain things about your environment. And because that's also the thing with acquiring information from the environment is that to learn something, to acquire something from, from the environment, you need to know how to get it. You need to know what to, what to expect. Uh, if you start from absolutely zero, you, you actually have very little information to, very little ability to absorb uh, 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 new information. Right. Yeah. And I suppose with a lot of what's going on in deep learning these days, you have systems that have relatively few priors and you're kind of overloading them with information. I do want to dig a little bit into your conception of intelligence as a system. So one thing you specify in the paper is that our evaluations, our conceptions of intelligence do have to be relative. They have to be more or less anthropocentric. Um, and in particular, there's something about intelligence that has to be in the body and in the environment. And I was wondering if we could linger on that a little bit. But one connection that struck me in particular was the connections between intelligence in particular, but then cognition more broadly. Because when I think about the inherently in body and environment, that draws a connection to dualism for me, you know, dualist theories of mind. And I'm curious if that connection is something that you think about um, when you're when you're just considering ideas of intelligence. Right. Yeah. So 
first of all, I think it's important to point out that intelligence is not the same as cognition. Cognition yeah. is, is, is much broader. Intelligence is, the, the way I conceptualize it is intelligence is kind of like the engine of cognition almost, mm -hmm. uh, but it's definitely not uh, the only component. And in general, I think you have to think about uh, the human mind and humans uh, and human society and so on as systems. And when you're looking at systems like this, it's not super proactive to just isolate one element and say, well, this is it. This is like the causal factor that's, that's creating everything. It's typically not. It's a complex system. There are many different factors at play that are, that are interacting. So if you look at the human being, for instance, I think many people, uh, many AI researchers in particular, have this sort of bias towards focusing on the brain as the source of everything. Uh, but of course, it's, it's one component, uh, and it's not a component that you can easily uh, isolate. You know, if you just have a brain in a jar, it's probably not going to be very intelligent. But yeah, uh, the, the environment is, uh, is super important, right? Yeah. One um, aspect of this that also struck me is the idea of the extended mind. So David Chalmers wrote quite a bit on this, and just... The augmented intelligence idea is something that I think is becoming more and more alive. And so I'm curious how that factors into the way that you think about intelligence. Yeah, totally. It's very clear to me that uh, the, the capabilities that you know you have or I have are not just explainable by one brain uh, uh, learning throughout uh, one single lifetime. Uh, I think human intelligence is definitely greater than the intelligence of great apes, for instance, but not that much greater. And the reason why we have dramatically greater capabilities is not just the brain. The brain is the enabling factor, but it's really our culture, our civilization, right? Like we have thousands and thousands of years of accumulating knowledge and skills and mental models about the world. And then uh, when you're born into this system, you don't have to uh, spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of years redeveloping them from scratch. You just inherit them directly. So you're not starting like uh, uh, at the bottom of the ladder. You're already starting pretty far up. And this, this body of knowledge and skills and mental models actually makes up most uh, of who we are, most of what we are. Like... The, the words I'm using right now are not words that I invented. They're words I, I, I took from, from human culture. Uh, most of the ideas uh, I'm assembling uh, uh, right now, I'm, I'm you know, just uh, joining together, are ideas I did not invent either. So most of your thoughts, most of your behaviors, pretty much everything you are, uh, is not, it's just something you inherited and are uh, uh, kind of like uh, composing in, in a new way. Uh, it's not actually that common, I feel like, to invent something uh, that did not exist before. And I don't think that's something that you know, necessarily many people uh, do on a regular basis. Yeah. When we speak about the idea of intelligence as not just an individual thing, I, I know I've read some really interesting papers and just commentary on the idea of like genius, for instance, not as an individual act, but really as something collective. and. What I wonder about is you mentioned the idea of mental models developing over time and societal changes influencing the way we think about things, perhaps the language we use to articulate our ideas. 
And connecting that to this idea of core knowledge, I'm curious when we think about that question of core knowledge empires, like how core are we talking about, right? If over time society develops a new mental model that everyone just kind of uses without really thinking about it over time, is that something that you see as becoming part of core knowledge? I mean, that's, that's an interesting question. Uh, typically, what you mean by core knowledge is knowledge that's innate or close enough. Because the thing is, there is no uh, clear distinction between what's innate and what's acquired by everyone universally in, the, in, in your very early stages of development. In particular, because sometimes uh, the knowledge that you have is just a combination of both. Like, for instance, you're hardwired to acquire language but you do not, uh, language itself is not something that, that you're born with. You have to acquire it. You know, the, the words you're using, the, the grammatical system you're using is something you get from your environment, but you are actually hardwired to acquire it. So language is kind of, uh, it's kind of like this hybrid thing that's both innate and not innate. And that's, that's actually true. If you look closely, that's, that's true for pretty much every, uh, human skill and ability, even vision. Uh, obviously there's, a, there's a lot uh, of structure in the brain that's just hardwired for vision, but ultimately you're not born with visual knowledge. I mean, you are born with a very, very small amount of visual knowledge, and uh, that's that's genuinely uh, innate. But ninety-nine uh, percent uh, of your visual knowledge is something that you acquire during during your, your first few months uh, of life. Uh, so there's no like clear distinction between what's innate and what's not innate. But the the line you can draw is between the stuff that's uh, very uh, culture-specific and the stuff that's universal, right? So core knowledge is meant to be universal. It's something that pretty much no matter what culture you're born into, you're going to acquire it. So if you, if you ask me, you know, if in the future uh, um, our culture develops a new, a new kind of mental model and by age like five, everyone has mastered it, is that core knowledge? Well, you would you'd probably say no because it's, it's dependent on, on your culture, right? It's not something that's universal to all uh, humans independently of their environment. One, one other question I have along the lines of, I believe other people have made this comment about the way in which you think about priors and in terms of solving, I guess, the art challenge you propose, which we'll get to later, is you mentioned something about a path to intelligence involving perhaps listing down the set of core knowledge, the set of all priors that humans tend to have. And I believe some people have really questioned just the possibility of making an exhaustive list of these priors or core knowledge. And I'm curious just how you would respond to to that worry right so uh, trying to map out the the set uh, of core knowledge priors i mean it, i think i think i need to explain why it's it's very useful for ai whether it's possible is, is an interesting question uh, so this is a domain that um uh, elizabeth spelke from harvard has done a lot of work in a uh, very interesting work so if you're if you're interested in that stuff you should definitely check out her papers and it's not, it's definitely not like a question we're able to answer clearly today. Like what, what are uh, core knowledge priors? Uh, so right now, uh, the set of known core knowledge priors is relatively fluid. For the most part, we keep adding to it. So it's not like there are, there are uh, uh, priors that were, that used to be known that are now being questioned. It's more like, uh, we are not sure what they really are and we, we can uh, keep expanding. 
uh, that set as we learn more uh, about uh, the rheumatoid psychology. Um, but I do believe, you know, uh, it's it's a scientific problem. So uh, like most scientific questions, it's kind of hard to obtain a, a, a very like true false answer. Uh, but you can definitely make progress. You can, it's 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 going to be hard to get to an extremely crisp picture, but you can gradually make the picture less and less blurry. And I think it's very, it's very important work and it's very enlightening when it comes to building AI. It's also important in the sense that if you want to make progress in AI, you want to be able to compare the intelligence of your AI and human intelligence in a way that's fair and, and reliable. And you cannot really do this if you don't control for the priors that both of the systems uh, start with. If you're, for instance, if you're asking your uh, totally uh, blank slate AI to come up from scratch with uh, uh, not just uh, something like, you know, the ability to, to, to recognize different objects, but also all the prior innate uh, knowledge that humans uh, possess that enable them to learn the same. Uh, the AI is at a disadvantage. Uh, inversely, if you just build uh, a chess playing AI that already has built in knowledge of the game and strategies to win the game, you're not, that's not, and you compare it to humans playing the game and they actually had to learn it from scratch. That's also not a fair comparison. So you want to really understand what do humans start with and what do humans learn? Uh, what does your AI start, start with and what does it learn? And then you can actually kind of compare learning efficiency, which I think is the key. Uh, intelligence is all about learning efficiency. Yeah. Before we move on to the idea of learning efficiency, there's one more connection I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on. So earlier we commented about the um, distinction between cognition and intelligence, almost thinking of cognition as something broader. And so just logically that would strike me as, well, if I think if I start to think about the priors that are imposed on cognition broadly, then that's probably going to be or have to be included in the set of priors that are imposed on intelligence. And there's so much commentary, so many ideas about priors on cognition. So if we look back at Kant, for example, the ideas of space and time, he views as a priori in cognition, but then there's another aspect of it related to the ways in which we reason. So there are a number of philosophers who think that this idea of the principle of sufficient reason, just the idea that everything for everything that exists or obtains, there has to be some kind of reason. And then cognition automatically kind of starts looking for complete explanations of the things that arise to it. That seems like an idea of something that is considered to be really important in cognition that also seems relevant to intelligence. And I'm just curious if that's a, a connection that you think about Yes, yeah, so we actually think uh, most of the prior knowledge that we are born with is not knowledge about the world. It is metacognitive knowledge, right? So for instance, so metacognitive knowledge more broadly is uh, knowledge of strategies uh, or patterns that are helpful in extracting more knowledge uh, from your environment. And so for instance, an, uh, an innate understanding of causality actually helps you uh, learn uh, causal models. Uh, if you have an innate understanding of causality, you're going to want to do interventions in your environment. And in fact, you do see very, very young children, like six months old, do interventions. So obviously they have some sense of causality. Uh, in fact, so in general, the, this idea that uh, 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 you have uh, any effect must have a cause. I also decided that some of the objects in your environment are 
agents that are pursuing goals. So they are acting because uh, they have a certain goal in mind. That's also something that's, that's innate, that's part of core knowledge. And to me, this is actually uh, uh, what's far more uh, interesting than, for instance, the fact that there is in the brain a built-in mechanism for recognizing faces. I think that sort of innate knowledge is not super interesting because it is hyper-specialized and hyper-like task specific. So it does not uh, generalize to new problems. But metacognitive knowledge, you know, by definition, it will generalize to very broad categories of problems, like for instance, meta, meta, metacognitive knowledge about causality is going to be able to generalize to any sort of causal environment, which is pretty much any, <laughs> any known environment in the real world. Um, so that's actually, that's actually much more, much more interesting. And I do believe that most of what we start with is metacognition, not, not just knowledge. And which makes sense, by the way, because to be born with certain piece of knowledge, it means it, it, it would have needed to be selected by evolution. So it would have needed to be something that's an invariant of your environment as a species for millions of years. And there are actually very few things uh, uh, in terms of uh, plain knowledge about the world that stay invariant for such long periods. So for instance, faces, well, uh, are kind of an exception. They, they, they've been uh, fairly stable uh, over time. And so, uh, 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 you know, beyond, beyond the scope of, of, uh, of the evolution of our own species, in fact. And that's why uh, we have this innate ability to recognize them. But uh, if you look at most other objects in your environment, you don't have, evolution is not going to uh, give you uh, an innate way to recognize them because they are new objects. Uh, if you look at, a, at a, a garbage truck on the street, for instance, you, are not <laughs> you did not evolve to recognize it. But if instead uh, you, you inherit this system that enables you to know how to learn, then you can just, in your own lifetime, acquire a ton of useful knowledge without uh, needing evolution to do, to do this uh, uh, sort of like writing process uh, from the environment to your brain uh, all by itself. Yeah, I, I do have a, a follow-up thought here. Um, I think this might be a good segue to talking about your definition of intelligence. You mentioned the idea of metacognitive priors as something that helps us acquire more intelligence. And I could just imagine the idea of more, more powerful forms of metacognitive priors that perhaps allow one to do it more efficiently. And I think that maybe is, is some motivation for this definition of intelligence where you define it, I think the words are uh, a measure of skill acquisition efficiency over scope of tasks with respect to priors, experience and generalization difficulties. So I don't get to cheat by having better priors than you, essentially. So I, I guess we can, we can start by looking at the, the definition of intelligence that many people um, have adopted and which I uh, try to oppose which is this idea that to be intelligent is to be skilled uh, at many different tasks. So it's like you can, if you want to build a, a general uh, intelligence, uh, you would just come up with a list of tasks. There's like 100 tasks or something. And you're like, well, if I reach uh, a score higher than a certain threshold on a benchmark uh, for each task, then I have uh, a generally intelligent agent. And to me, that's extremely misguided because it's confusing skill and intelligence. Uh, a skill is a, a static artifact. It's something you can either acquire, but you can also just, uh, that can be hard coded. 
by the process that creates the system, whether it's a human programmer creating an AI or whether it's uh, evolution creating uh, a skill, for instance, in the, in the brain of a worm. If you look at a, a worm like C. elegans, it has a brain network that's hard-coded by evolution. So all of its behaviors, all of its skills is, is hard-coded. It has no intelligence because it has no uh, ability to learn. It has no ability to adapt. It, it is purely an automaton, like a little robot, that enacts behavioral programs that were uh, hard-coded by evolution. And so my definition of intelligence is, so as you said, you know, uh, uh, skill acquisition efficiency. So what does that mean? It basically means that intelligence is about the ability to adapt to new circumstances that you are not prepared for. So that means circumstances that you are not prepared for by either your own experience, it's not a situation that you've seen before, or by your own uh, evolutionary history. It's also not a situation that your ancestors have been, have been selected to, to handle. And so what does it mean to adapt? It means you know, to generate appropriate behavior. So if you, if you break it down, it's really, it's really nice that you are intelligent if when faced with situations that you've not seen before and the process that uh, designed you in a way uh, or evolved you uh, uh, also did not see before. Um, and in this situation, this novel situation, you're able to come up with appropriate behavior. So there are many aspects of cognition uh, that we are skipping here. Like for instance, we are not talking about uh, the ability to set goals. Like to generate appropriate behavior in a situation kind of implies that you have some kind of goal that you're pursuing, but we, we are just leaving that uh, implicit. We're assuming that's provided by some external system. So I'm not trying to characterize, you know, all of cognition. I'm really just focusing on, on this one tiny part that I think is important. And that's what I call intelligence, the ability to mm. adapt, the ability to learn uh, and do so efficiently. Because here's the thing is that we are talking about biological agents. And as a biological agent, when you learn something, well, first of all, it has a cost. It has like this uh, energy cost and energy, you know, is precious, obviously. Uh, but it also has a cost in terms of risk. To learn something is to try out things. And by trying out things, by experiencing things, you're exposing yourself to risk like a predator could kill you. Uh, or you could just die in an accident. And so some strategies uh, that are very exploration intensive might lead to fast learning, but they are not going to be, they're going to be very risky and uh, they're not going to be, you know, experience efficient. So uh, I'm interested in experience efficiency because it's a proxy for energy efficiency and risk efficiency in biological agents. You're intelligent if you, if you acquire new skills that are very different from uh, what you've seen before and you acquire them using as little experience uh, as possible. So at that stage, you can basically characterize intelligence as a conversion ratio between the information that you have to so the information that you're born with and the information that you've acquired through your experience and uh, the sort of like area you can cover in a future experience space. You can think about the set of possible futures that you're facing as a, as a space, a sort of like physical, let's say 2D space. And the information that you have at a certain point in time enables you to generate appropriate behavior in a certain kind of like subset uh, uh, of that space, uh, an area of that space. And uh, the more intelligent you are, the greater the conversion ratio between the information you have and uh, your ability to cover a lot of space in future situation space. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you do propose a formal definition of this in your paper. And 
One thing I, I wonder about in terms of this definition is at least one thing with, I think, information theoretic definitions a lot of the time is they're really helpful for organizing the way we think about a concept, but then it can be difficult to precisely measure them. And I suppose um, one of the utilities of some kind of measure like this is when people make claims about the intelligence of systems like GPT-3 or like a particular reinforcement learning system, we can kind of organize the argument that maybe this is not particularly sample efficient when we take into account um, a set of priors, the the task that it's acting on, and other other relevant information there. But I, I am just curious how developing this definition um, has really articulated that argument for you, I suppose, because I think that there are a lot of people with very strong opinions about the path to they call it general intelligence. And I know you say there's no such thing as general intelligence, but for example, DeepMind has published papers like reward is enough, uh, that very strong argument that reinforcement learning is kind of the correct path to developing intelligence. And so I'm curious, you know, just how you how you articulate a response to claims like that with respect to the your, your definition. Right. Um, I mean, if you look at a system like uh, GPT-3, it's the clinical example of a system that is skillful, but not intelligent. Um, what you have is basically a curve fit with gradient descent to a very, very large uh, uh, data set. And it's, it's you know, as uh, because it's a very big curve, it has lots of parameters, it's going to be able to fit to many different patterns, right? And then if you present it with a pattern at the scene, then it will produce appropriate behavior. So it is skillful in that sense. But the thing to keep in mind is that when you scale up these models to, to more data and more parameters to also be able to absorb more of that data, you are not increasing the intelligence of the system. So something like GPT-3 is actually not dramatically more intelligent than a logistic regression. It is dramatically more skillful because it's bigger. But there's a, this, this big difference between um, uh, intelligence and skill. Right? Intelligence is the efficiency with which uh, you operationalize the information that you've been exposed to. Uh, if you need to be to have been exposed to uh, multiple iterations of a pattern in order to be able to make sense of it, uh, you are not actually very intelligent. And you you might say, well, you know, but uh, GPT-3 can do one-shot learning or zero-shot learning and so on. As a matter of fact, it cannot. If it could, it, it could solve ARC. Uh, GPT-3, but more broadly, you know, large language models, including models that are dramatically larger uh, than GPT-3, uh, have turned out not really to not be able to solve uh, any non-trivial arc task. So some, some arc tasks are actually poorly designed in the sense that they're just uh, reflecting patterns that are uh, uh, commonly found. Like for instance, doing a symmetry uh, or rotation and so on. So that's not super interesting. Uh, but any sort of like non-trivial arc task, and there are hundreds of them. Uh, so large language models uh, actually do not manage to, to solve them, uh, including some very sophisticated uh, systems that are uh, cascades of large language models, uh, where you start by fine-tuning uh, a model to provide natural language description of a task, then you feed that output to a code generation model to produce uh, candidate programs, then you add some, some more programs, and this is on top of that to select uh, programs that are more likely to be correct and so on. So or you can actually build very sophisticated systems that end up not uh, being able to beat extremely crude and basic approaches where you're just basically trying to brute force the program space. Uh, so I think to me, that's really interesting because 
if you look at humans, pretty much any human, even like a five-year-old, a six-year-old, can look at one of these arc tasks and come up with a solution pretty much instantly. And it's not like they've been, they've been prepared for it. It's not like they've trained on IQ test-like uh, problems or on arc in particular. It's just intuitive for them. And meanwhile, large language models, which have been trained on, on much more data than a five-year-old, they're they are just not able to do it at all, which shows that they're not actually able to adapt to something they've never seen before, the way a five-year-old can adapt to, to true novelty. Yeah, that's a, a really important part of it because people do talk a lot about the zero-shot capabilities of a system like GPT-3, but then that is within a pretty limited scope, as you're saying. I think a lot of people have observed, as you said, that GPT-3 can be pretty useless on, as you said, any non-trivial tasks in ARC. And you do have um, thoughts on more promising directions. You've talked quite a bit about program synthesis. Could you tell me a little bit just about that um, and perhaps any like hybrid work with program synthesis and, and deep learning that you find interesting and as promising approaches. Totally. So if you look at deep learning, the limitations that you hit with deep learning, they are due to the, to the very nature of the substrates uh, that you're learning with. So deep learning is about uh, you have curves, uh, highly parametric vector functions, and you're fitting them to data points. And because the curves have basically uh, uh, no, no priors about their structure, you need a dense sampling uh, of the problem space in order to fit your curve, right? So basically, uh, any, any point on the curve should be at most uh, that far away from an actual data point. Otherwise, it starts drifting into total nonsense because there's no prior about its structure. So you need a very dense sampling. You need tons of data, basically. But then you can only use your curve to generalize to relatively close uh, data points. You cannot do, you know, uh, uh, deep extrapolation, it, it basically doesn't work. Again, because uh, the curve has no, has no prior, but it's structure. So if you move away from the training data, uh, you are in, in, in a space that's totally unknown. And also because, because it's a continuous uh, curve, it has, to be, it has to be continuous because it has to be differentiable. Otherwise, you couldn't use current descent, right? Uh, for this reason, it's, it's also very sensitive to small shifts in the underlying distribution, right? If you uh, kind of changes the environment, if you change the environment in some way, uh, your curve uh, 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 is no longer going to be a good fit uh, for the data. So it really only works when, when you have uh, static problems that you're able to densely sample. And in the case of GPT-3, well, it works very well uh, as long as you're you know, within the distribution uh, uh, of, uh, of sort of like text that you may find uh, on the internet. But if you step out uh, with an arc task, for instance, then well, you're no longer on the curve. It's no longer a pattern that's been that's been absorbed by by the system. So it's it's no longer uh, uh, going to be able to make sense of it. So there is actually a different family uh, of learning techniques uh, that has properties that are basically uh, the uh, reverse uh, of the properties of deep learning systems, and that's program synthesis. So deep learning is all about learning with uh, this learning engine that is quite descent applied to continuous curves. And program synthesis is actually fundamentally discrete. You have a search space uh, that's basically uh, a discrete graphs of discrete operators taken from a set of operators, which you would call a, a DSL, domain-specific language. And you're combining them using discrete search, using combinatorial search, right? And this is an entirely different learning philosophy. It's an entirely different learning engine. It has entirely different properties. 
And the big thing is that this enables you to do actual uh, one-shot or two-shot uh, learning in the way that you cannot do by fitting a curve. To fit a curve appropriately, you need a dense sampling of the underlying space. But to find a program uh, that matches a certain set of inputs and outputs, you just need uh, one example of input and outputs, right? Uh, I mean, the, the, the more you add, uh, uh, the more accurate the search becomes, uh, but you can do programs this with very, very few samples. So one example is, let's say you want to learn an algorithm to do uh, uh, a four-digit uh, number multiplication. Well, if you do it with deep learning, uh, you need to train on like thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands uh, of examples. And even then, your curve is, is not going to be able to really handle the problem because it has not uh, encoded the actual algorithm. It's only encoded a probabilistic mapping. So it will be, be right maybe 70% you know, of the time and it will be more right for numbers that are seen often than numbers that are seen more rarely. Meanwhile, uh, with program synthesis, let's say you have a DSL that is made of just plus, minus, and a for loop. So very, very simple operators, right? And, and you provide like three, just three examples uh, of four-digit uh, multiplication. So an example meaning an input and the corresponding ad. You can find the exact algorithm. Uh, that algorithm is going to be right 100% of the time. It's going to generalize, in fact, to arbitrary numbers, even higher numbers, right? So it, it has extreme generalization properties. You learn it from just a handful of examples. The process for learning it is not costly at all. It's, um, it's costly, obviously, because you're, you're mining program space, but it's not dramatic. And once you found it, running this program is actually extraordinarily cheap. Uh, meanwhile, you know, uh, trying to, 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 to do the same problem by fitting a curve it's very expensive. You need tons of data. It doesn't actually work. Uh, it only does local generalization. And actually running, you know, uh, doing inference on the curve is actually extraordinarily expensive. Like running your large language model is extraordinarily expensive. So I, th I think that's an example that kind of gives you uh, the gist of why program synthesis is interesting. You can learn exact uh, reasoning patterns from very few data points. So now, why is program synthesis not uh, widely adopted? In short, it's because we don't know how to do it. Like the big obstacle, in, in deep learning, the big obstacle is very much finding enough data to fit your curve. And then you have more problems like local generalization, distribution drift as well, like concept drift is, is a huge uh, issue and so on. Uh, but with program synthesis, the major issue is just the size of the search space. If you're just doing combinatorial search, uh, you're, you're, you know, as, as you add more operators to your DSL or as you... Uh, make the problem more complex, you're blowing up the search space. And, right. and then it's starting infinitely long <laughs> to, to, go, to go over it. And so it, it just doesn't work. So, and part of the reason why we don't know how to do it is that there's been relatively little interest uh, in it. So it's like the combination of the fact that it's a very hard problem and the combination of the fact that uh, very few people have, have really looked into it. And I think there's actually a, a, a lot of things to be done in terms of coming up with smarter uh, strategies for harnessing uh, you know, uh, better uh, search techniques that would dramatically reduce uh, search space complexity. And in fact, I believe this is uh, an area where you can combine uh, deep learning and discrete search uh, to get better ways uh, to navigate uh, program space. And in my opinion, that's going to be the future of AI. It's going to be hybrid systems where you're going to be using um, inference on curves. Uh, you're going to be doing curve feeding for some sub problems. Uh, to do anything that's related to perception and intuition 
And for anything that uh, actually requires reasoning or planning or something that is uh, an exact process or something that needs to uh, adapt uh, to novelty in just a few shots, you're going to be using program synthesis. You're, you're going to be using this sort of hybrid uh, system, not hybrid system in the sense, you know, some people uh, uh, throw around the, the keyword neurosymbolic. Uh, what they mean yeah. is typically hard-coded combinations of uh, hard-coded symbolic logic and deep learning models. Like, for instance, AlphaGo is a good example of that. Or self-driving car is a good example of that. In a self-driving car, you have this explicit symbolic 3D uh, in fact, model of the world, and that's being uh, interfaced with the surroundings of the car via deep learning models. So the deep learning models are in charge of perception, but then the actual driving rules uh, are hard-coded uh, symbolic rules. And this is not actually what I mean when I talk about hybrid systems. I, I'm talking about a system where everything is learned, uh, where the deep learning modules obviously are learned, but also the symbolic rules are just obtained via a program synthesis process. And that program synthesis process should be itself driven by intuition that comes from deep learning modules, because that's really how uh, you're going to be able to reduce the size of search spaces by having intuition over uh, uh, what, uh, where to search for what, right? Uh, intuition about how the search space, the program space is organized. That's, that's an important distinction. I have had a few conversations with people like Stuart Russell or Chris Manning who have been involved in thinking about neurosymbolic methods. And I know that the both of them think that it's going to be a pretty important path forward, especially in terms of getting systems to do things like explicit reasoning, for instance. But to what you're saying, um, this idea of, of learning symbolic rules via program synthesis so you've also said that we don't exactly know how to do program synthesis over um, reasonably, or I guess just very complex search spaces. And so does that really boil down to just the search problem itself? I'm curious what the sort of immediate, most difficult problems in that space are right now. Yeah, I mean, there, there are multiple factors uh, as to why uh, we're not very good at program synthesis. Uh, the biggest one, I think, is the problem of uh, the ability to uh, generate uh, good abstractions. If you look at uh, how a software engineer uh, does program synthesis, they, they do it in a very different way than a, a combinatorial search process. It's not like you're iterating over millions of different programs to find like your, uh, your um, feasible uh, function. You start from a mental model, uh, and then when you, when you come up with uh, sort of like repeated patterns, you abstract them into a new class, a new function, and so on. And then you, you can even go one step further. You can open source uh, your, your abstraction. You can share it as part of a library. And then the next software engineer, not only are they going to uh, have access to abstractions that come from their own mental models, they're also going to have access to this sort of like global library of ready-made abstractions that they can leverage. And this is why today... Uh, we have these software engineering superpowers. If we are uh, coding everything in assembly, uh, you know, the, the, the space of problems we could solve with programming would be very limited. The reason why we can do almost everything with programming is because we have access to these um, the, uh, increasingly high-level uh, abstraction libraries. And to me, that's probably the number one problem uh, uh, you should be solving in program synthesis is the problem of abstraction generation and, uh, and reuse. And uh, you want to do so across tasks. 
in the lifetime of one agent, but you also want to do it across agents. And this is where you have this connection um, to uh, 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 cultural cognition. The fact that our cognition is not just in our brain, it's also uh, in our environment, in, in, in our culture. The reason why we have uh, these uh, extraordinary abilities is really because we, have, we can just reuse, uh, download almost, uh, uh, abstractions that were developed by our predecessor, much in, in the same way that as a software engineer, I can reuse a bunch of libraries that were not uh, developed uh, by me, right? Yeah, yeah. I guess when I think of my own um, process of like writing code and software engineering in general, as you're saying, so much of it, and I guess it's almost a, a running joke to the extent of, oh, I just copy and paste everything from Stack Overflow. But there is, I think, a, a deeper point behind that to what you're saying about how we are reusing abstractions, ideas people have already developed. And when I have an idea, a larger thing I want to implement, I am able to, on the fly, take chunks um, of smaller problems people have solved. I am able to fit them within a broader framework that I might come up with myself. And there's just many um, different aspects of, of synthesizing going on in that. Yeah. Again, it's, it's very much an efficiency question. Like even a very basic search process can come up with arbitrarily complex programs. It's just that it's very inefficient, right? And uh, the the problem of solving uh, uh, AGR is very much the problem of increasing search efficiency. It's it's not about anything like fundamentally qualitative. It's more like quantitative. It's like how do you make the process more efficient? It's also the the reason why uh, uh, deep learning on its own uh, is is not going to be a path. Uh, to which yeah, it's just as this fundamental uh, efficiency issue because of its own nature, because it's curve fitting. And when you're reusing like uh, 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 snippets from Stack Overflow, when, when you're using libraries, you're not really doing anything you couldn't do on your own. It's just that doing it on your own would be very inefficient. It would be uh, uh, tremendously more uh, time and effort. And so if you uh, if you did not have access to it, the space of programs you could write. Theoretically, it's the same space, but in practice, uh, given that you only have a, a limited lifetime, a limited amount of effort to spend on it, it's dramatically smaller sets, right? And uh, reuse, abstraction generation and reuse is really how you make the search process more efficient. And to me, that's really the, the one problem we should be uh, focusing on today. Yeah, it's certainly a big difference between I have to invent everything myself from scratch versus I just kind of know what to look for and know that somebody else has already done this. Like even in um, thinking about very well-known systems, so like the um, self-play training of AlphaGo, for instance, it went through all of that computation. And I think some researchers who kind of interrogated that process saw that this thing kind of rediscovered through that process of playing itself, some very basic chess, chess strategies. And that's a, it's a pretty big difference. Like it developed a level of creativity that humans just don't have. And there's something very, very impressive about that. But there is to what you're saying an inefficiency and in that it had to relearn things that I could just go Google or something and figure out how to do pretty quickly. I think this would be a great place to segue into a last section just on broader thoughts on AI in general. And you've written a number of things that kind of go beyond the parameters of, of Keras and intelligence. 
And in particular, you've discussed your concerns about artificial intelligence. I think some specific ones you've called out that are pretty salient these past few years are the idea of social media as a psychological panopticon, digital information consumption as a psychological control vector, viewing human behavior as an optimization problem. I think The Social Dilemma, for instance, was a very famous documentary that expressed very similar concerns. And I share a lot of these, but then also I wonder about the ways in which these criticisms get articulated in certain circles. So Tristan Harris, uh, a very big figure who appeared in The Social Dilemma, often talks about the insane amounts of compute that are directed at you every time you spend time on YouTube or on Google. And there's something that's just very interesting about the way he articulates things. And I'm curious um, just how these other criticisms that have come up recently have struck you um, and whether you find articulations like that one from Tristan Harris useful in thinking about these concerns. Mm, yeah. So this is something I started um, writing about in early 2017. So that was at a time where I, uh, it's not really something uh, people were talking about. And since then, you know, it's really become a, a top of mind. You know, lots of people, there's been documentaries, there's been uh, articles, books, and so on about the problem. And I, I, I was talking about it really in contrast with you know, some people talk about existential risk from AI and so on, but they're really talking about um, potential risk from systems that simply do not exist, even in prototype form today. Like there is no path from something with GPT-3 uh, or AlphaGo to a sort of like autonomous AGI uh, that would maximize a, a, a pay-per-click manufacturing and, and, and destroy a human civilization. Um, there's just no path, right? Uh, so it's it's purely uh, it's it's sci-fi speculation. It's kind of like worrying about uh, alien invasions. Uh, and meanwhile, there are very very important, uh, dangerous, and pressing problems uh, with the deployment of AI today. And so the 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 problem of uh, recommended systems uh, and social media algorithmic propaganda. Uh, are, are, are real problems, right? Uh, and importantly, they are real problems even in a world where we don't have very sophisticated AI. Like you don't need very sophisticated algorithms for these issues to be uh, to create a, a, a very significant problems. And also, it's it's a problem in a world where uh, the companies that are running the algorithms may not necessarily have bad intentions, right? Like you don't need you need social media companies to deliberately try. Uh, to to push certain uh, uh, viewpoints uh, in order to get a system that will actually radicalize people, that will actually push propaganda. It could be done just because uh, it turns out to maximize engagement, but it's, it could also happen because your system is being exploited because it's it's an open system. It's a, it's a system that your users have access to. And so it can be exploited by bad actors, right? Uh, and it's actually something that we've seen a lot especially the, these past few election cycles. And I think as long as uh, uh, social media companies are, are not really, are run by, you know, decent people, I think we're, we're, <laughs> uh, we're, we're, in, we're in an okay place. For instance, so Twitter uh, around 2016 uh, was very much a playground uh, uh, for uh, all kinds of uh, propaganda that was not like, you know, people talk a lot about bots and so on, but it wasn't bots that were the problem. It was actually a, a constant where, 
uh, run by humans, uh, sock puppet accounts, you know, um, uh, humans pretending to be <laughs> uh, uh, people in the US, but they weren't actually people in the US. And they, they, it was an algorithmic propaganda issue in the sense that they were being amplified uh, uh, by algorithms. It wasn't purely an algorithmic issue, by the way. So I think even in a world where you don't have recommender systems, uh, just via uh, social media uh, content spreading dynamics, uh, you still have an issue. It's, I mean, you, you could say it's, it's an algorithmic issue in the sense that the reason it's a problem is because of uh, 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 content propagation dynamics. So things like what you reward uh, in the system and the psychological level. So even if, if you just have like uh, uh, purely temporal uh, timelines, you still, you still have this issue, right? I'll tell you frankly, I'm still, I'm honestly more concerned <laughs> about, about it today than than than, uh, than I was like uh, five years ago. Uh, it's an even it's an even bigger problem today, and I'm not really seeing like a solution coming from uh, these companies or coming coming from regulation or or, or, or you know anywhere else. Uh, it's basically this open, uh, almost intractable problem. Yeah, it's. I felt, I think, many of the same things as you in regard that it seems to have become more of a salient issue over the past few years. And also that there don't seem to be good solutions coming along. I am curious to see what comes out of the attempts at regulation that different countries are trying over the next few years, because I know that the U.S. has put out an AI Bill of Rights recently. The EU has its own AI regulations um, a couple of the guests we've had on recently have talked about China's AI regulations, and I know they have specifically targeted recommendation algorithms. And some people have commented that they're really going to be conducting these very large regulatory experiments. And so it's it's hard to know how that will all pan out, but I guess we'll just have to watch and kind of see what happens and see if they chart a path forward. Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, wait, wait and see. <laughs> but it it does it does make sense uh, to provide uh, some sort of uh, regulation in the same sense that so we we exist in a, uh, an environment that is increasingly made uh, of information, and if you're in a sort of like free for all kind of like you know in the in the sixties for instance or even seventies in the US, uh, many uh, manufacturing companies or energy companies were just dumping pollutants. Uh, in your environment, uh, around uh, around communities, and um, while nowadays that's regulated, uh, and I think uh, the situation we are in uh, with social media today is actually uh, pretty similar, where it's a free for all, and all kinds of entities are basically uh, dumping poison uh, into the system, and uh, you know there's there's no one to to try to provide uh, uh, any sort of like dynamic to counter them. Um, and that's that's just not that's just not a healthy situation, and I think everyone realizes that uh, uh, there's a problem. Yeah, I, I think we are coming to like a greater societal realization. One thing you commented on in um, your earlier note was the existential risk kind of long termism camp, and from what you said, I get the sense that you are probably not in the long termism camp. But I am curious just how you think about some of those worries with respect to your own work in terms of the idea of defining intelligence, the ARC data set, trying to chart a path towards intelligence. 
I, I would guess that since ARC is aimed at a more anthropocentric human intelligence, then probably the Nick Bostrom-esque super intelligence worries probably don't come about in terms of developing the type of intelligence you're thinking of. But I, I am curious just how you think about the long-termism, short-termism debate, if you think that it's useful for people to be thinking about those concerns. I know you have already said that there's a lot more immediate pressing things to worry about. Yeah, um, I, I do think thinking about the long-term impacts of your decisions, you know, what does the world look like 50 years from now, 100 years from now? I do think that's useful, not because you're going to be able to accurately model the future uh, and influence it, but because it helps you uh, contextualize and frame uh, your own your own decisions and actions today. So it's kind of like helpful almost as a as a way to gain conceptual clarity about what you're doing in the present. But it's, if you if you take long termism literally, uh, it seems misguided to me because we have absolutely no ability to predict what the world is going to be like in a few hundreds of years, and we have even less ability to deliberately uh, influence it. I mean, we can't we can't even do it at, at a, at a ten-year timescale, right? Um, at least most of us. Government policy can be planned at a, at a ten-year, twenty-year timescale, uh, but even government policy is not effective when it comes to kind of shaping the state of the world into. 200 years. Uh, and that's especially true when you're talking about new technology, because we understand even less uh, about what they're, they're going to look like. So today we have no, um, there's no technology available today that, you know, if you just extrapolate what it's going to look like in the future, it's something that's like a threat to, 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 to humanity. I mean, in, at, at least in terms of, uh, of uh, the, the AI technology that we have today. There are various technologies that you can already extrapolate are going to be uh, 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 pretty big problems. I mean, people don't really talk so much about uh, uh, nuclear war these days. Uh, but uh, recently, we've been talking a lot about uh, man-made uh, pandemics, for instance, deadly pandemics. Uh, well, to me, that's actually a very significant danger, and it's something that is plausible in the sense that the technology uh, is a is already there, or if you just extrapolate current capabilities, you know, into the future, you, you will feel it will, it will it will soon be there. This is not the situation that we're in for AI. If you extrapolate current capabilities into the future, you still have, uh, uh, you, you do not get like this emergent, autonomous, uh, superhuman uh, <laughs> fantasy. It, it's, 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 it is pure science, science fiction fantasy. It's very much like worrying about an alien invasion. Like, would it be bad and dangerous if just... Uh, an alien spaceship just showed up and started destroying Earth? I mean, yes, absolutely, I would say yes. And in the same way, you know, if you have a, an autonomous, uh, superhuman digital entity emerging in your computer overnight, that would be bad. Uh, but it's, it's not something uh, plausible today. Yeah, I think this is certainly borne out by a lot of the hype cycles, AI winters we've seen recently. One particular example that comes to mind for me is just the incredible overpromising and the self-driving space, for instance. Um, and that's just, you know, compared to quote unquote AGI, a relatively probably small part of the problem, but it's just like so many of these companies have been promising probably self-driving by 2020, 2022, and we are nowhere near that. Originally, it was 2016, you know, originally it was 2016. Like in, in 2015, we were like, well, you know, this technology is already in there. Uh, it's it's a very advanced prototype today. So twenty six is going to take off, uh, <laughs> and today it's it's actually it's actually starting to be viable in certain environments. 
you can actually yeah. drive, ride in a self-driving taxi in, uh, in Phoenix, for instance, or even in, right. in, in limited circumstances in, in SF today. Uh, and it's going to be rolled out to more cities. But to me, what's interesting is, besides the timeline, what's interesting is the way we eventually solved the problem uh, is not because we eventually achieved AI that is general enough to drive in any environment. It's because we've kind of like hard-coded, increasingly sophisticated models to handle uh, and very much by hand, right, to handle an increasingly uh, a large and general set of possible driving situations. So it is very much sublinear scaling of generality, which is driven by human engineering. So in that sense, self-driving, investment in self-driving, the R&D in self-driving is not different from any other kind of R&D. We invested in 100 billion uh, in self-driving. That's like a little bit less than half what was invested in the Apollo program. And it's, it's very much the same kind of R&D. Like it's not, it's not like... It's not like we have an exponential curve where we put it one uh, uh, unit of effort and we get like 10x uh, more generality. It's not, it's not, it's actually sublinear. So that's true for self-driving. I mean, obviously that's true for any other complex real world task that requires uh, adapting to certainty and novelty. I mean, domestic robotics is also a, a big field. Uh, people have been telling us for a very long time, you know, uh, very soon we'll have robots in the home uh, doing uh, uh, stuff for us. Well, that's that's not that's not happening anytime soon because <laughs> the real world is just this extraordinarily uh, diverse uh, uh, and and uh, and ever changing environment. So it's extremely difficult to uh, program or learn behavior that will generalize. Because again, the the sort of so obviously hard coding it uh, is an extraordinarily uh, 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 costly uh, endeavor, the, the same way that, uh, uh, I mean, you, you, can, you can say the same about self-driving. Self-driving is actually a much simpler problem. But learning it, which is kind of like the promise of deep reinforcement learning and so on, also doesn't work because due to the nature of the learning systems that we have today, you know, these big curves, uh, what you're learning is extremely environment-specific and task-specific. So any new skill or environment you want to pick up uh, is going to be extremely narrow. It's going to be like this one, uh, apartment, this one, uh, uh, sink, and so on. And to acquire it, you need a dense sampling of the problem space, right? So you need tons of data to acquire these very, very narrow skills. And uh, when you move on to the next slightly different skill, you again need tons of data. So it's not, it's not like you have a, a, an exponential scaling of the capabilities at all. Yeah, and I guess when we think about those capabilities too, even with respect to generalization, there's you, you might get a decent amount of progress unexpectedly at some point. So we have certainly experienced periods in the history of deep learning where there is pretty fast progress, but then you do run into a wall and you have to throw a lot of things at it in order to, to push past a little bit. And so even if there are periods of acceleration we can perhaps point to, I think those, those certainly are punctuated by long periods of people just banging their heads against a wall, figuring out, okay, do we have to try a different direction? Why uh, why do we seem to be stuck here? And so I, I would definitely agree with you. It doesn't seem to be the kind of exponential progress curve a lot of people seem to expect sometimes. One, one, uh, one caveat I would uh, add to that is that for some verticals, you do see exponential progress. When you are in a setting where purely adding uh, more data or more compute uh, leads to breakthroughs, Right. Uh, so in general, deep learning is extremely good at organizing uh, information on manifold, and then you know, we can sample from manifold. And 
whenever you find a problem where just training a, a more a, a learning a more accurate a bigger manifold is useful then uh, you do get uh, exponential progress because you're able to scale up uh, your deep learning models i think this is something that we saw uh, very clearly in, uh, in text to image technology for instance um, well, it turns out you can just take a, a, a years old uh, a deep learning uh, technology, and if you train it uh, on on big enough data sets to embed uh, uh, this uh, uh, text cross image um, uh, space, uh, you get a model that actually reaches uh, uh, photorealism, uh, which is I, I don't think it's something that many people expected necessarily that it, it would uh, it would arrive uh, uh, so quickly and it would be so good. Uh, but this is actually one example uh, where deep learning technology gives you uh, this sort of like breakthrough improvement because you're in a setting where um, the problem is just about learning the right manifold and uh, uh, you can get a better manifold with just more data and more compute. And I do expect there will be more problems like that. Uh, but this will absolutely not apply to environments where the problem is not just learning the right manifold, but adapting to things you've never seen before. So robotics, for instance, or, or even self-driving. Like, again, we have not solved self-driving by scaling up uh, deep learning models that drive the car end-to-end from cameras to, <laughs> to controls. That's not at all uh, the way it works. Mm-hmm. And because it cannot right. work this way, because it needs to adapt, right? Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's There's definitely a lot of different types of problems that, we might care about or attack with deep learning. And as you're saying, it's um, certainly relative to the space we're working in. I'd love to close out with one final question to you. So a lot earlier, we discussed Keras and good software engineering and user experience design. And for people interested in AI and developing intelligence, so much of that is about the engineering of it. For Somebody who's perhaps early in their career and just is trying to figure out how do I become a good engineer, do you have any general advice that you would have over over the experience you've accumulated over time? I mean, my my number one advice is uh, ship projects. Find something you're excited about. Uh, And the excitement is actually key because you're going to need motivation. Motivation is the hard part. Like getting the knowledge it's not the hard part. The knowledge is on the internet, right? Uh, but being motivated enough to get it is the hard part. So find something you're really excited about and ship it. And then do it again and again. And this is how you acquire experience. Uh, but one caveat is that uh, shipping on your own, not as part of a team, uh, is going to get you working code, is going to get you programming mental models that are useful and so on. It's going to get you good skills. But it's not going to teach you uh, software engineering best practices. For that, you do need uh, the team experience. In fact, uh, ideally, you need the mature company, uh, mature tech company, because the tech companies have the know-how experience. So things like you know using CI, uh, using um, source control. I think source control these days is is more more broadly used than it was in the past. But yeah, Um, so one possibility is just do an internship at a big tech company, or just take take a job at a big tech company, even if you don't want to stay there very long. You know you will uh, gain a ton of useful knowledge about uh, industry strength, uh, software engineering best practices. If you do not have access uh, to these opportunities, uh, I think the the next best thing is to contribute to an open source project that is run 
uh, by a big tech company because it's almost like an internship light uh, type of situation where um, you get exposed to uh, the, the whole range of processes uh, that uh, uh, the team uh, responsible for the software is actually using. And you, and you get access, you get exposure to it as, as a third-party contributor. So anyone uh, can actually get access to this experience. Yeah, I think that's really, really wonderful advice. And I know for myself, I guess, as somebody two years out of college and thinking about a lot of these things, much of what you said is really salient. Francois, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time today. You are a really clear thinker and communicator, and you have impacted me and so many other people with your work. So I want to thank you for all of that and for chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks a lot for the chat. It's it's really my pleasure answering your questions. Thanks for having me. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.